evidence-based question-answering section of the Archives of Disease of Childhood, where clinicians have found a clinical problem that they needed to know the evidence for, turned it into a focused clinical question, rushed out and searched the evidence to draw back what might answer that question, appraised it to see its qualities and its weaknesses, and put that all into the massive melting pot of their amazing brains, pulled in the information from the parents and families and come up with a conclusion as to what they might do in practice. On this podcast we have two such cases and some thoughts on how to make evidence-based medicine work better in your everyday clinical life. Our first case comes from the postnatal wards and it's from David Thaxter and Anna Killenbach from Epsom Hospital and the London Deanery down south in the UK. On a postnatal check The parents of a two-day-old baby who've noticed some flaky skin on their beautiful new child are asking about the use of natural plant oils to make their baby's skin softer and much lovelier. As the treating clinician, you go away and think, hmm, I'll ask a structured clinical question. In healthy neonates with dry skin, that's the population, does the topical application of natural plant oils, the intervention, Compared with synthetic emollients, which is sort of commercial baby lotion type things, that's the comparison, lead to the better dermatological results. That's the outcome of interest. Now note that it's the improvement of the quality of the skin and the appearance of the skin that's important here, rather than asking a different question. So does adding uh, extra emollients to a small baby stop them getting infected and dying, for instance? So the team went away and they looked at an electronic database to try and draw together all of the possible information that would be available. As this is an intervention question, they primarily looked for randomised controlled trials and previous systematic reviews. They found 14 RCTs and one potential systematic review within the Cochrane Library. This review, however, looked at harder clinical outcomes of mortality and infection rates and didn't really look at the skin quality. And so instead they focused on the three RCTs that particularly looked at the dermatological quality of the babies when they'd had the different things applied. What they found was that two of them were in term newborns and one of them was in preterms. The RCT which was closest matched to the question was of 50 patients and published in 2017. It compared sunflower oil versus a commercially available baby lotion and looked really at the moisturising capacities of both of these. It didn't show any difference between the two things, but did demonstrate that with the use of the moisturisers, the skin improved as to compared where the baby started with. The other trials compared different sorts of oils with no moisturiser, or an oil against a baby lotion against nothing. In both cases, they found that the oils did better than nothing, and in the largest one on preterm infants, they found that an olive oil-based cream was better than a commercially available emollient. There was no clear evidence that the use of any of these plant oils led to long-term problems with dermatitis or any other issues, although they're relatively small numbers and didn't get followed up for a very long period of time to see if in later life the kids developed more eczema or atopic diseases, or indeed the opposite, and were preventable. Their clinical bottom line is that the topical application of these natural oils of olive and sunflower oil seem to improve neonatal skin hydration, though they do note that the other sorts of oils that people have discussed of palm oil, avocado oil or jojoba weren't really investigated at all so we don't really know the answer to those areas but that they do not seem to have any disadvantage over the commercially available emollients 
although long-term evidence of their care is lacking. Now, that leads us on to think about something that we don't focus very heavily on on this podcast, and that is the application of evidence in practice. We go through how you make the question, how you find it, how you appraise the evidence, and how you come to your conclusion. But your conclusion on its own isn't really that important. It's when you bring it together with the patient or their family that it really makes a difference. The model of evidence-based medicine that we espouse is one that is grounded in that patient dilemma, that is, the situation that they're in. It's that that triggers the asking of the PICO question. It's that that should pick within that which are the outcomes that are important to your patient or that patient's family. The acquisition, the appraisal, those elements are intellectually stimulating. But the really, really important bit is taking all of that and applying the results of the deliberations alongside conversations with the parents about what's the right thing to do. Now, those conversations involve you listening actively, actually listening to what those patients and parents are telling you. What are the outcomes that are important to them? What are the risks and benefits that they're prepared to trade off? And what are their views on the uncertainty when it comes to the evidence and the uncertainty of outcomes for this particular thing? What you're doing there is shared decision making. Now, my experience is in paediatric oncology and it's evolved over the years of working there. Most often, shared decision-making conversations are at the most sort of shared and least guided or instructed when what we're talking about are the symptom-relieving approaches where a variety of near-equally effective options are available. I have to say the next most often for me is the situation of a patient who has a relapsed disease where there is a great range of uncertainty, no clear curative option available sometimes, and that then there are many dimensions to where that treatment may go next. For not yet senior clinicians, the realms of non-life-saving interventions are where I suggest that you put your efforts into taking this step into this world of shared decision-making really actually do it and not seeing EBM as a satisfying but ultimately just brain stretching exercise of pointlessness that you can bung on your e-portfolio but actually fundamental to the way you practice medicine why not take it up next time you have a family asking about emollients to make their baby's skin as soft and lovely as it ever could be The second of our cases this month comes from Jill Irwin and Jacqueline McBrien of the Developmental Paediatrics Department of the University Children's Hospital in Dublin, in Ireland. They report the case of a six-year-old with a mild intellectual disability that has no clear diagnosis, MRI brain and microarray CGH are normal, but has terribly difficult sleep problems that haven't got better over the last two years of the parents trying a variety of behavioural techniques, and they're asking about the possible use of melatonin for their son. Again, a clinical question was asked in a structured way in children with intellectual disability. Does exogenous melatonin have a positive effect upon measurable sleep parameters? Were the outcome? This team went away and they searched in Medline for a variety of things and looked for systematic reviews in Cochrane. And what they found was a single systematic review that was very useful and then three subsequent RCTs that went on after that systematic review had been completed. 
The authors note that the evidence is heterogeneous, that is, it's quite mixed up. It's not always the same group of patients that are in the different studies. There are different ages. They use a variety of different doses, ranging from 0.5 to 12 milligrams. The way that they assess the sleep outcomes varied. Some had actigraphy, some had sleep diaries, some had before and after, some didn't. And the duration of treatment was really also very varied, with mostly being about six weeks, some being 12 weeks, but none being much longer term and assessing the more chronic effects of melatonin upon sleep. When the meta-analysis was undertaken, it was demonstrated that the sleep latency, that is the time from going to bed to falling asleep, was reduced by those patients taking melatonin down by about half an hour. The overall total sleep duration seemed to be up by about an hour and the early morning wakening was reduced as well. Now I don't know if any of you are parents out there that are listening or have ever had that time where you've woken up in the morning with somebody jumping on the bed demonstrating their intense love for you at 5.15 by wanting you to sit with them and watch CBBS, which is a TV show that goes out during the day in the UK and it's even before CBeebies wakes up and you realize that your life is so, so much different than you imagined it as a 19 year old. But this to me would be the ideal thing for any medicine that relates to sleep to do for you. Two of the three subsequent RCTs that came on after the systematic review also demonstrated similar sorts of improvements. And one of them found that whilst there was reduced sleep latency, the actual total duration of sleep didn't increase and that the early morning wakening part was made a little worse. The authors conclude that the evidence suggests that melatonin will improve sleep in children with intellectual disabilities who've had sleep disorders not responding to behavioral therapy, but that there isn't a significant dose response. What they note is that there isn't huge evidence for early short-term problems because of the medication, adverse effects and so, but that the long time effects of these drugs hasn't really been noted and we're not quite so sure as to how well they work. That's the Archimedes for this month. Maybe you'd like to submit one. If you've got a clinical question and you're unsure about, have a little look at the evidence, come to the website and follow the instructions to authors, contact and fill in the structured form that we have in order to guide you through the writing up process of an Archimedes and have a go and submit it. Your efforts will be helping other people in the same situation as you and it might even be quite good for your CV. So until next month, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.